So please stand to honor the reading of God's word. It's also going to be on the screen. One day, an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replied, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? The man answered, you must love, shout love. The Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus told him. Do this, you'll live. This man wanted to justify his actions, so he asked Jesus, And who's my neighbor? Jesus replied with a story. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho. He was attacked by bandits, shout attacked. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along, but when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. The temple assistant walked over, looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. Then uh, the spy Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Shout, felt compassion. And going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day he handed the innkeeper two silver coins telling him, take care of the man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? Jesus asked. The man replied, the one who showed him mercy. Then Jesus said, Yes, now go and do the same. Repeat that with me. Say yes, yes. Now, go now go and do the same. Please be seated. God, we ask that you'd work a miracle as you speak through me and to me today. In Jesus' name, amen. I uh, suspect that most of you, like myself, been captured by the tremendous uh, challenges and violence that have come out of Charlottesville. And today I want to speak to that, so I've called this message, Jesus, Charlottesville, and the gospel is their hope. And I'm sure that fresh in your minds are the images of those who uh, last weekend part of the alt-right, uh, hosted a rally, counter-protesters showed up, and there were these, you know, tons of them walking with uh, torches, chanting, all kinds of horrible stuff. And before the weekend was over, uh, we had a fellow who drove his car into the counter-protesters crowd, killing a young woman. Two police officers also lost their lives. Tons of people got injured. And the, pre the, the government's response uh, within the next several days left such ambiguous moral clarity that the thing exploded even worse. And I think that if there ever was a time that the church ought to speak out, it should be now. 
Come on, praise God. And so I wanted to make sure that you heard both my voice, but more importantly, that you could hear what I think Jesus is saying to all of us in terms of what he expects from us in this incredibly difficult and challenging time. So here's the statement that I want to make be absolutely clear about it. Anybody to be confused about it. Racism and human hatred in whatever form it shows up is sinful, evil, and just wrong. Full stop. That's it. There's a clear biblical basis for this. Right? Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. God makes it absolutely clear that all human beings are made in his image. That means that in the best of us, in the worst of us, we all bear the image of God. That says that there is immeasurable value attached to every one of our lives. And of course, it also means that none of us are beyond the reach of redemption. But then... Paul helps us to figure out how this works inside of the gospel, right? So in Galatians uh, chapter 3, verse 28, uh, Paul speaks out in his day and essentially saying that in Christ <clears throat> there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, there's neither male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. In order to just be sure that we get what he's saying here, in his day, people measured their value based on the various uh, categories that they fell in. If they were, uh, oftentimes if they were a Jew, there was a sense that this person was better than a Gentile. If they were, had a political category, if they were free, they, I'm better than those that are slave. If if they, a gender category, if I'm a male, then I'm more valuable, more important than a female. But Paul says the reality is if you and I are in relationship with Jesus Christ, all of those false distinctions fall away. And that we are all one in Jesus Christ. No big U's, no small I's. We are all of equal value in the face of Jesus Christ. Isn't that wonderful? Let's celebrate that. <laughs> that is the gospel. Now, now, I got an email uh, earlier last week who said to me that the person thought that we should be doing more as relates to this issue uh, here at NBCC. And I thanked her for her thoughts and etc. And then I challenged her not to miss what we are doing. See, the fact of the matter is, if you really want to make the KKK upset, if you really want to make neo-Nazis upset, if you really want to make the white supremacists upset, take a picture of this room. Let them see black and white and Latino and Asian. Let them see Republican and Democrat. Let them see rich and poor. 
Let them see the diversity of a Christian community worshiping in a Jewish synagogue. Send that picture to them. So the fact of the matter is, every time we show up Sunday morning, sit beside one another, stand and worship together with one another, pray with one another, we are protesting and we are proclaiming that there is transformed life in Jesus. If you want to know, is there some hope? Just look in this room. There's hope, people. There's hope. There's hope. So, now that we're clear about that, ask the person next to you, are you clear about that? Ask them, are you clear? All right, all right, all right. Let's what does Jesus have to say to us and how does he expect us to respond in this unique challenge? This is why we go to this particular parable. I preached this and taught from this about a year, year and a half ago, but it is uniquely uh, shaped for this particular season. Now, it begins in verse 25 with an expert in religious law uh, deciding that he wants to stand and test Jesus. To some degree, our faith is being tested today by asking, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What, what do I need to do to access a life that will go on and on and on and on? Jesus says, Well, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? How do you interpret it? The guy says, well, you shall love. Everybody shall love. Stop right there. There's at least three audiences to this parable. There's a guy that Jesus is talking to. There's a crowd that's standing around them. And then there's the folk that Luke, who's reporting this, he's writing to some people. And the very first thing that I think that, that Luke wants us to hear and Jesus wants us to hear is uh, that if you are a Jesus follower, and I'm going to say this because this is important, because some of the folk who are mouthing out these hatred uh, stuff call themselves Christians. But what Jesus wants you to hear is that if you are a Jesus follower, your life should be defined by love. All right, that people should be able to look at you and experience you. And even when you stand up for justice, it ought to be resourced from a place of deep love. For Jesus said in John 13 that the world shall know that you are my disciples by how you love one another. So love the Lord thy God, the guy says, with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength and all of your mind and. Your neighbor, shout neighbor. neighbor. Now, interesting enough, there's no adjective there. He, he did not say, and love your black neighbor or your white neighbor or your Jewish neighbor, your Christian neighbor or your gay neighbor or your straight neighbor or your rich neighbor or your poor neighbor. didn't say that. It says neighbor. Everybody shout neighbor. neighbor. Your neighbor as yourself. Now, here's the challenge of that. If you don't know how to love yourself, it may be difficult to love your neighbor. 
But the life of a follower of Jesus should be defined by this notion of love. Love of God. Love of neighbor. Love of self. As a matter of fact, you should be so full of love that you even love your enemies. We'll come back to that in a minute. And so, Jesus says, you got it. Go do it. Simple. God didn't want to let Jesus off the hook. So he says, well, who is my neighbor? Rather than Jesus allowing himself to get pulled into an abstract, philosophical, theological debate, Jesus locates the definition of neighbor on a dangerous road between Jerusalem and Jericho. Everybody shout, dangerous road. Dangerous road. Uh, this, this Jericho road was very dangerous. Verse 30 talks about how the guy starts in Jerusalem, goes down. Uh, Jerusalem was 2,000 feet above sea level. And Jericho is 1,000 feet below sea level. And the road is a winding road, and it drops with that steepness in 20 miles. And it was called the bloody pass because people would hide around the corners. And as you came around the corner, they would jump out and attack you and beat you and steal from you. And so they called it the bloody pass. When I think about where we are in this country today, I want to suggest we too are on a dangerous road. And I was talking to my friend, Dr. Tony Williams, who is the pastor of Maranatha Christian Church in San Jose, African-American pastor, one of my best friends on the planet. We were processing this together a few days ago, and he said to me, he said, well, you never guess what happened to me two weeks ago in San Jose. I said, what? He said he was sitting outside of a fast food place on a bench. And two or three guys came out of the restaurant. And when they saw him, they started shouting at him, nigger, nigger. Called him several other horrendous names. They went on and got in their car and drove away laughing. Now, my friend Tony said, had that been 40 years ago, <laughs> he would have went to his trunk and came out blazing. <laughs> Shout, but! He told me it did not even disrupt his day. And the reason why it did not disrupt his day is because he's walked with Jesus long enough to know who he is, how loved he is, how valuable he is. It did not even disrupt his day. But what, was da what, what is dangerous about that is that we are once again in a time frame where people feel that they have a license. They are emboldened with that kind of hatred. This is a dangerous road. Now, I think when Jesus is talking, as he shares this parable, there are really two 
answers to two questions that he wants us to have by the time we get to the end of the parable. By the time he gets to the end of this story, he wants us to be able to answer the question, who is my neighbor? But also, by the time we get to the end of this story, he wants us to be able to answer the question, which category do I fall in? Because he's going to go through these four different characters that represent, I say, categories. One is the bandits who attacked the guy. He wants you to ask, am I a bandit? The other is uh, the religious leaders who refused to risk their lives and pass by the guy. He wants you to ask, am I in that category? The other is the, the victim who is lying on the, on the road, half dead. He wants you to ask the question, is that me? And the other is the Samaritan, who really is the Jesus figure in the story. He wants you to ask, is that me? Now here's what's unique about this. Here's what I want to suggest. That if you listen closely, most of us think, well, we're probably one or the other, maybe two. But I want to suggest that depending upon what season of life you may find yourself in, at any given moment, it might be the case that we can find a little bit of all four in us. So let's see. Verse 30 begins with uh, Jesus saying that this person left Jerusalem on a road down to Jericho when he was attacked. Everybody say attacked. He was attacked by bandits who stripped him, beat him, and left him half dead. Could it be that you are a bandit? Now let me give you an example of a modern day bandit who, 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 who potentially strips and beats and leaves people half, who, who find themselves attacking. These are the folk who would take a stereotype and use it as a, as a blunt instrument. Here's how it sounds. This is the person who says, the stereotype. All or at least most black people are dangerous. Stereotype. All or at least most white people are evil. Stereotype. All or at least most rich people are greedy and self-centered. Stereotype. All or at least most poor people are lazy. You, 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 you see how that works? We're using the blunt instrument of a stereotype where you are attacking a person based on a stereotype, stripping them of their own humanity, their own individuality. 
All or at least most Republicans are X. All or at least most Democrats are Y. Now let's just take the races and the fascists and let's just set that to the side. Have you ever used the blunt instrument of a stereotype like that? Have you ever heard yourself either think or say all or at least most? Have you ever found yourself attacking others based on a stereotype? Maybe it legitimately came out of a place of pain. Several weeks ago, I had uh, an Asian woman who has been worshiping with us, had been worshiping with us for several weeks. As I was greeting people, she stopped in the line and said, Pastor, I want to talk to you about something. This has been a great church. I've loved being here. But she said, for the last two weeks, you have asked people as they got ready to exit to hug two or three people. This is an Asian woman. She says, I turn each week to my right, and there's always a white person sitting there, and I reach out to hug that person. It's a different person each week, I assume. I reach out to hug that person, and they turn away. She says, Pastor, I just want you to know you have races in your congregation. I said, well, we have, the church is a hospital. All of us are sick folk. We got different diagnoses. So I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not surprised if that's one of the diagnoses. I'm just happy they're here. But I, I also said, but I wanted to affirm her pain. I wanted to affirm the fact that she was interpreting what happened as a, as a part of a larger narrative that actually had captured and defined her life. And, 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 I, and I, I get that. So I was ready to pray for her and, 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 and just pray that, that she would continue to come and continue to see God move and bless. But then she said to me, she wasn't satisfied with that. She said to me, Pastor, when are you going to acknowledge the fact that all these white people here are racist. Now, driven by her pain, yes. Unintentionally, yes. But she just slipped from being the victim to becoming a bandit. That she took the blunt instrument of a stereotype and she hit everybody who comes here who's white stripping them of their individuality robbing them of who they are even in the presence of God and so I had to stop her right then I could not allow her to just use a blunt instrument because because I I know too many white people who worship here and I I, 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 I know that Deborah Aston is not a racist. Come on, I, I, I know that, that, that John and Larry are not racist. I know that, that Gene Mark is not a racist. So, so, so I just couldn't let her take that. Are they sinners? Yes. Where is John? I saw him somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> 
John here somewhere. <laughs> Am I a sinner? Yes. She attacked. Have you attacked? The second category. The religious leaders. The folk at the top of the game. The priest comes, sees this person, most likely from a distance, walks by on the other side. The temple attendant, which is called a Levite, comes, and the text says, New Living says, he actually walks up to him and essentially observes him from up close and then decides to pass by. Doing nothing, shout doing nothing, <laughs> leaving him right there. I love the way Dr. King treats this text. As a matter of fact, he talked about this often, but uh, this is one of the texts he treated the night before his assassination at Mason Temple. And he, he talked about this. He said, he said, maybe the reason why these religious leaders passed by and did nothing was for ceremonial reasons that perhaps they thought the body was dead and they weren't supposed to touch dead bodies within a certain proximity of of their activities shout maybe he went on to say that maybe perhaps in the case of the priest who didn't go close to the body this person maybe he thought uh, this guy could be pretending to be wounded. And if I go over there, he and his compadres will jump me, and I'll be the victim. Shout maybe. maybe. And then he said, maybe, at least in the case of the Levite, who actually walked up according to New Living Translation and, and observed them up close, maybe, who could then see that he's bleeding and he's not pretending, maybe this person concluded, if I get down and begin to care for him. Perhaps the people who did this to him are hiding in the bushes. And the moment I become vulnerable, they will jump me. So maybe. What Dr. King says is that ultimately the priest and the Levite asked the wrong question. Ultimately, the question they asked was this. If I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? Whereas the Samaritan, when he came along, he asked a different question. If I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to this man? And what Dr. King was arguing, and what I would argue, is that part of having a Jesus character in our lives is that when we come across those who are in need or in trouble, or when we come across those who are on the wrong side of justice, we ought to not ask always the question, if I stop to help, if I stand up and speak out, 
Will I lose my job? Will my family members see me in a different light? We should be asking the question, if I don't stand up, if I don't speak up, what will happen to them? Now it's risky. Shout risk. It's risky. Dr. King lost his life the following day, but he asked the right question. This woman, Heather, 34 years old, lost her life when that fella drove into the counter-protester, but at least she asked the right question. Jesus, oh my goodness, this is Jesus at the very heart of who he is. He leaves eternity, comes to, to the planet, makes himself vulnerable to be hurt, to be wounded, ultimately to be crucified because he asked the right question we find him on the cross not asking if I go down to redeem these people what will happen to me but we find him on the cross asking if I don't go down and redeem these people and give my life what will happen to them I'm so glad Jesus asked that question aren't you glad and those of us who have a Jesus character we are challenged to every now and then take a risk risk ourselves for others now there's a third category and here's where for me this teaching becomes super rich this is where because you know the first couple of points you don't necessarily have to be a Christian to do those anybody with a sense of justice would, 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 would argue for the first two points this one this is uniquely Jesus oriented now in order to do this you got to read the text closely and in verse 30 the New Living Translation identifies the one who's the victim he says a Jewish man leaves Jerusalem and goes down to Jericho he's the one attacked he's the one lying there now, immediately our minds need to expand to understand that when we think of Jewish people, they are among those who have been the most, among those who have been the most mistreated and horrendously abused over centuries. None of us can forget the six million Jews that was destroyed by Hitler and Nazi Germany. That's... That horror lives with our history. And it's important to note that the one telling the story, Jesus, is in fact Jewish. By the way, it, 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 it is always an interest to me how hatred can cause the hater to slip into unrecognizable insanity. Here's what I mean. I watch those folk march with those torches and, and, and they were saying hateful things against Jewish people. And some of them saying hateful things against Jewish people, if you asked them, they would say, I'm a Christian. And so it dawns on me. How can you say hateful things against Jewish people 
when the one who you claim as your savior is Jewish. Jesus was Jewish. You see that insanity? And so we, 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 we give voice to the, to the suffering that Jewish people have experienced. And yet, in this immediate biblical context, Jesus, who is Jewish himself, is giving a critique of his own cultural context. He's talking about his own situation. And he refers to the Jewish man in verse 30. In verse 33, he refers to the despised Samaritan. Shout despised Samaritan. Despised Samaritan. At the very least, this is how Samaritans felt that they were viewed by Jewish people in that day. They were known as half-breeds, that these were people who had compromised their faith and their religion. They were not allowed to go to the temple to worship alongside uh, 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 Jewish people. Uh, there was this air of superiority and inferiority. And so this Samaritan, this despised Samaritan, you see, uh, uh, is a shock when Jesus makes him the God-like figure in the story, the Jewish people are shocked because they see him as, as, uh, as, as something less than a God figure. And Jews and Samaritans, they have no dealing with one another. And what do you mean he's more like you than us? And the Samaritans are shocked as they listen to the story because what shocks them, watch this, is that here is this Samaritan guy coming up, finds this Jewish guy who for the Samaritan, the Jewish guy, represents the source of his oppression. Who for the Samaritan, the Jewish guy, represents the victimizer. Who for the Samaritan, the Jewish guy, represents the one who has continued to hurt his people. So the Samaritans are shocked when the Jewish guy, when, the, when this, this, this despised Samaritan doesn't kick the guy, doesn't step on the guy, doesn't walk and say somebody else. But this Samaritan who the text says feels a sense of compassion, is able to look beyond all of the stuff that stood between him and this guy and see the brokenness that is hidden behind uh, this guy. And he's moved to compassion and kneels down and risks himself. Oh, that's uniquely Christian. Let me try to help you get it, because I know you're struggling with it. I was talking to Celeste Hooten a couple of days ago, and she told me the story. She's our executive director of operations, and here's what she said. Saturday, she was watching the news clip of the neo-Nazi group with torches walking through the school at night. And they were chanting these words. You will not replace us. Jews will not replace us. And Celeste says, she's listening to it on TV. TV. She was frightened. Because in fact, this is scary stuff. But then she remembered. The scripture says, God has not given you the spirit of fear. 
and love and wisdom and sound mind. The word actually translates timidity. In other words, don't let fear hold you back. Doesn't mean you don't feel it. Don't let it hold you back, right? And so she's struggling with that. Then her mom calls her. So she mutes the TV so she can talk to mom. But she's watching the video. And she sees them mouthing the words without the sound. Suddenly she is struck by what she actually sees when the sound no longer interferes with her insight. She listens and she hears them say, you will not replace us. Do you hear the fear of them? Jews will not replace us. And suddenly Celeste says that she was struck by the fact that they were coming out of their own brokenness. That they were scared to death of losing something. And she said suddenly she found herself being moved to compassion. And, and she just broke out into prayer, Celeste says, and she started to pray for them because suddenly she saw the woundedness behind the hatred. And I don't know whether she thought about it, but as she told me the story, I could hear Jesus say, pray for those who despitefully use you. Do good for those who, because what Jesus is saying, behind every hatred, there is some brokenness, there's some woundedness. All right, listen to this. Never allow another person's hatred of you to pull you so low that you hate them back. All right? Come on. Ask why. Because hatred is colorblind. Hatred is gender neutral. Hatred will do the same thing in a black man's heart that it will do in a white man's heart. Hatred acts the same no matter what heart is in. Hatred will cause you to lose your mind. Hatred, I tell you, will cause you to look at the other and, and, and no longer see his humanity. Hatred will cause you to look at the other and no longer see that the image of God is still etched into their brokenness and that they are not beyond redemption. Hatred, I tell you, will cause you to slip into your own superiority. And that's why Dr. King said it so powerfully when he said, Black supremacy is as dangerous as white supremacy. That's the danger of hatred. So here's the challenge. It's a uniquely Christian challenge. Because only Christians really get this point in a unique way, I should say. You see, were you angry when you saw that? stuff on TV. You should have been. Did you want to do something about it? Good. You should have. But why? Why? Were you angry 
because how they made you feel about you? Were you angry because you saw the defenseless and you wanted to help defend? All appropriate reasons. But Jesus' followers, they get angry for one more reason. They not only want to see the victims liberated, they want to see the victimizers liberated also. That's the Christian. That's what makes me a Jesus follower. Different than anybody else and than many other people who are in the mob. That, that's why Dr. King said, I'm going to use nonviolence because at the end of the day, I want to liberate not just the oppressed, but I want to liberate the oppressor. It's the ability to see the other with the eyes of God. That was a Nazi. Told a story, the Washington Post carried it. He said he was sitting in the uh, McDonald's, all these tattoos, swastikas on him. And an African-American woman came, looked at him. And with a tenderness of love, she said to him, you're better than that. Come on, shout. Say, say it. You're better than that. <laughs> and she walked on. And he said that that, because of how she said it, and what she said, there was something that got stuck in his mind. And it would be months later before he would actually lead the white supremacy group that he was a part of. But what, what, what the seed that got planted was a woman who was able to look at him and to recognize that there was more to him than his hatred. That there was more to him than the Swatzers. That he was better than that. Our task is to call out hatred, yes, but pray that the hater is delivered. Because you know what? They're better than that. So I'll conclude here. Did, Did you catch the uniquely Christian part of that? I conclude here that Jesus says, be like the Samaritan. Let me me get you to put it here. So if you're the source of pain, if the object of pain, whoever's the source of your pain, maybe it's your divorced husband who you hate. Maybe it's some kid that's caused you so much pain that you can't really say you love them right now. Maybe it's, maybe it's a white racist. Maybe it's the person on your job who calls you a racist because you're white and you've done everything you can to be the opposite. What the text says, if you're a Jesus follower, is that you see them not merely the hurt that comes through them, but you see the woundedness behind the hurt and that you should be willing to help bind up the wounds if given the opportunity. Put them in your car. Drive them to the hospital. Take out your credit card. Pay for all their expenses. 
And then on the other side, let them know that if there's more, you'll take care of it. Because at the end of the day, Dr. King was right when he says, darkness will never drive out darkness. It takes light to do that. And hatred will never drive out hatred. It takes love to do that. So Jesus says, choose love over hatred. So everybody shout how. Here's, I'm finished now. I'm just going to give you these four points. And if you don't have notes to take this down, turn in your connection card. I'll send them to you. There's four things you can do to choose love over hatred. First of all, you can pray. You can begin to go to God and ask him to do what no other human being can do. But you can also ask God to show you you. Shall pray. Secondly, you can dialogue with others who are not like you. We have connection cards that are on the Connect Four cards that's, that they're going to give you on your way out. They give you f the way to do that. Here's the first summary point of how to do that. It falls here. Listen to learn. Say this to me. Say, first, listen to learn. And then as you walk through the steps and you get into a dialogue, I want you to do this. Say this with me. I will express my thoughts. Come on, I didn't hear you. I will express my thoughts and my feelings. I'm going to tell you what I think, but I'm also going to tell you how I feel. How I feel about your, what you're saying, but also how I feel about you. That even though I radically disagree with you, I'm still trying to muster the redemptive capacity to love you. Now, there's not going to be a lot of people that you're going to get to talk to who's going to say, I'm a racist. Are you not a racist? Let's talk about me being a racist. But there are a lot of people who you can talk to, who stands, who, who you can talk about whether you should tear down Confederate monuments or not. There's folk who are on different sides of that. You ought to talk about that. There are folk who you can talk to about what should be our approach with the president? Do we support him or do we oppose him? You ought to talk about that. There are folks that you can talk about who are uh, uh, about the opiate issue. And there are some people going to say, we don't mind helping the people who are dealing with it now. But we're just angry because for decades when African Americans were drowning in the drugs of their community, you wanted to lock us up and, and throw away the key. And now you want to rehabilitate people. Let's talk about that. Shall dialogue with others who are not like you. And thirdly, speak up. Come on, say speak up. Speak up. Stand up. But do it with love. Identify the woundedness in the person that you're engaging with. And feel a sense of compassion even as you passionately argue your point. And then lastly, at the end of the day, Reach out. Everybody shout, reach out. Look for those around you who are wounded, who are fearful, who's anxiety-ridden. And throw your arms around them. Tell them it's going to be all right. Tell them if God's before you, 
who can be against you. Tell them that love never fails. Shout amen. Give God a hand praise.